name is Charles Austin, and I'm the director of the College of Extraordinary Experience. You're listening to the Business of Extraordinary Experience. My guest today is Callie Holden. She's a senior manager at Magic League. She has a dark past in marketing, and her LinkedIn profile has random quotes like, I built Wayfinder, a full Google Chrome extension to change the way people navigate the web with international startup team consisting of five people. That sounds impressive in itself, and it's just one line out of many. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Klaus. So first question is, Wayfinder, change the way people navigate the web. I love how it's just so casually mentioned that, oh, I did a thing that changed the internet. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, I think that was more of the goal um, than what it, uh, you know, than what it was fully realized. That project was very interesting because it was uh, early uh, attempt with 3D web to visualize the internet. Um, and I think that really set the pace for a lot of what I've tried to do with technology and experience um, in my career. The goal of that project really was to, um, rather than just having a bunch of tabs open, doing research and kind of getting lost in it, to visualize your journey through the internet using um, like a, a, a graph, uh, but a really simple one. Uh, we tried doing it both in 3D and 2D um, and create this journey so that you could share with other people the journey that you took through the internet and show uh, what you learned in your research or help plan a trip and show the different options to somebody really easily. You could annotate um, and you could uh, like edit your history and send that to somebody. Um, it was, uh, I'm still really proud of that project, but the company has since pivoted into like a uh, research as a service business. So it's very different um, from what it was when I was working with them. That sounds, I, I just took that because of it, it sounded interesting, but it turns out it's not just interesting, but actually fascinating. So if <laughs> I understand you correctly, one of the things you could do with this was that you could plot out like a route that you'd taken, like a, a, a route map, like you'd, you'd go on a on a road trip and then you plot out, okay, first we visit this city, then we take this highway, then we go here, we cross this bridge, et cetera, but just doing that online. Exactly. Yeah. Nice. So you could, if you wanted to, plan, shall we call it, internet road trips for each other. Yes. Yeah. And probably a lot more stuff as well, but this is just one use case. I just got out of that from your explanation. Yeah, I, uh, I used it, I think, at the time to even find an apartment because there's so many platforms for finding places to live. And then you have all these tabs open. And you're like, oh, shoot, where were the ones that I really liked? Uh, let me share this with the person I'm trying to like become roommates with and see if she likes everything. Um, and then you could kind of annotate like, oh, this one's in the neighborhood, but it's a little more expensive. This one isn't in the neighborhood, but it's more a price point. This one has a balcony. So you can quickly, you know, you're not just uh, constricted to the information that um, the creator of the web page put, like, you know, the title or the URL. You can actually add your own comments um, to what that, uh, that web page or, you know, whatever that URL means to you in the context of your journey and context of your experience. So that, that plays in perfectly into the fact that we're right now, as we record this interview, it's Corona time. And we're not talking about the beer, we're talking about the virus. And that means that everybody with an internet connection in the Western world is cooped up, uh, not really knowing what to do with their lives is, unless they have kids where they just want to survive having kids. <laughs> and, and I guess something like that 
is a pretty nifty gift to send to send somebody saying, okay, I've prepared, I've prepared a digital road trip for you as a form of entertainment or discovery or enlightenment, however you want to frame it. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, I've been getting a lot of just emails with videos from my aunts and um, friends, you know, sending recipes, but it's all still through email. And so that's tough because it's really disconnected from our conversations or from how they even discovered that video or how they found that recipe, what inspired them to share it. So it's not as compelling then when I, when I experience that through email, because it feels like a lot of the story, a lot of the narrative is missing. So in creating, you know, new ways for people to experience the content, it's not just the content itself, but it's the meaning put behind the content. And that's, um, yeah, I think that's a lot of the value that, uh, that Wayfinder project had. That also provides me with an excellent segue, or dare I say, jump, or maybe even leap. Okay, that was bad, but I did it anyway. <laughs> into the work you currently do at, here it comes, Magic Leap. And you even worked at a place called Leap Frog. So there is a yes. theme here. It's very Tell confusing me. for my family. They think I went, they've, I've stayed at the same job, but very different companies. <laughs> I, I would say that from what I know of those two, of, of Leapfrog and Magic Leap, there's a, there are differences both in size and in scope and in, uh, in kind of what they're trying to do. Tell mm -hmm. me a little bit about what you do at Magic Leap. Yeah. So at Magic Leap, uh, for the past three years, I've been managing a team and we are in charge of the developer experience. Um, what that means is we work with all of the developers, whether they're partners or part of our independent grant program, or they're just people in the community who have bought a headset and want to make compelling content in uh, spatialized content on Magic Leap. Um, we help them from when they first are getting started with the platform to when they're shipping the app and make sure that it's really easy for them to create content, uh, make sure that whatever they're trying to do, we can work with them to find the right tools to, um, you know, to test and guide on how that should be designed uh, so that they can, you know, achieve what they what they've set out to do. A big part of my job was bringing um, feedback to the rest of the company. So since I'm getting to talk with the customers and with the developers about what they're trying to make, uh, it's really good insight into really how people see this, this platform, this headset that we've built and can make it work in industries, you know, we're not even experts and um you know we're we're a hardware company we're a software company we have some people who are experienced in the medical field but we don't you know not all of us day to day who are making those tools really know what it uh people need in a hospital setting uh to use magically so a lot of my job was distilling that feedback uh so that our product and software teams could work with that and improve the platform and make it better and actually i didn't tell you this before uh, we got on the podcast but on Monday, so in like uh, six days from now, I'm actually switching jobs internally. So I will be leading uh, product management for Magic Leap's SDK and tools. So now it won't be my responsibility just to tell uh, you know people the feedback, but I'll actually be responsible for responding to that and um, building and developing uh, solutions and tools that people can use for content creation. So. It's a new role, uh, but I'm very excited for the challenges that it will bring. 
I guess it also means that this podcast will be kind of a goodbye because from what I know of project manager positions, they are 100 plus hour work weeks in many places and insanely stressful. So it will be the last time we talk ever, I guess. <laughs> well, I hope not. I mean, I'm kind of a, I don't know. I like to try to come in and optimize my entire job so that it's a lot of it is handled by tools and uh you know, technology where it can, so I can just spend the time thinking about challenging problems. So I think the next couple months are going to be a lot of me just getting the tooling set in place so I, I can focus on that. But after, once that's done, I think we'll be able to talk again because that's where people get stuck uh, on the 100 plus hours. They, they don't let the computer work for them enough. Let's talk for a moment about letting the computer work for them because you've spent... I'm not going to call it decades, but at least more than a decade letting the computer work for you as much as possible. What made you in the beginning get into this whole digital user experience, online, waka waka space? Yeah, I I am so glad you asked because I, I love this story. It's not, uh, maybe it is because sometimes when I talk to people, they're like, oh, me too. But I... Uh, I, I wasn't very, uh, you know, I wasn't a kid who was going home and like writing programs every day after school, like alone in my room. I really, I didn't really have any true coding experience until I went to college and decided to pursue my degree in computer engineering. Um, what I was actually doing was I, I grew up in South Florida. So I was playing outside. I was a sailing instructor. Um, I was an athlete. I was uh, in cross country and track, but I was also making um, a lot of just uh, comedy videos. And I had two friends um, who are still in the arts, uh, Zach Skip and Claire Grossman, who were, Claire is a writer and Zach is, um, is in, in film. And they, they kind of pulled me in. They were like, oh, you can, you know, you have good instincts, come make videos with us. So we were making videos during school, after school, and uh, Zach taught me to edit. And so I was editing with Final Cut, um, these like little digital movies we were making. And it just, uh, the more I got into it, I was like, wow, this could be a lot faster. We could make this film a lot better. You know, if we, if we produced it this way, or if we like, we could just use an animation software instead of like painstakingly doing all these stock go animations we were doing. And then the more I dug into it, I realized like, oh, this is just, this is computer engineering. If I can learn to code, if I can tell the computer what to do, you know, I can make my art faster. I can get this, this creative idea out quicker and I can do it better and more polished. So the more I went down that route, the more I just realized I liked solving those problems and making it not only easier for myself to uh, create my art and create my work, but then be able to do that for other creators um, who a lot of times I'm like, well, their idea is like, my idea is half-baked, but this person has a really great idea and they just don't have the tools they need to get that out the door. That's something I can do and that's where I can make like the most impact. So I've been following that journey uh, probably ever since. And, and that to me is pretty fascinating because there's a lot of people out there, myself sometimes included, that when we look at a thing and we see, oh, I'd like to do this, but I don't have the right tools, or I may have the right tools, but the tools can't do what I'd like them to do. And then you stop. Now, you're one of the people that when you see 
that the tool doesn't do what you want it to, you start thinking, how do I improve the tool? Mm-hmm. What exactly. are three things that you've learned over the last 10 years about improving the tools that you think a lot of people would benefit from? What are like three, three tips from this improve the tool mentality and journey that, that you could share? Things we could do on Monday, even if we're not in software, but more like yeah. ways of thinking. That's a, that's a good question. Thank you. I think, I think I have two. Uh, two. Uh, I'll try to come with a third. So the, I mean, the first is to not lose sight of, of the goal. A lot of times, once you get into the new goal of make the tool better, you can lose sight of like, what are we actually fundamentally trying to do? Oh, I hear you. Not like overscope it or switch because this is like an easier way to do it or this is like a fun way to build this thing. Like, does this solve the problem and is it solving it in the most simple way? And like, as you're developing it or building it or creating it, it's in the middle. it's, It's surprising how easy it is to lose sight of that. So always like anchor, anchoring and like, this is the goal. This is the goal. And for yourself or if you're working with a team, like making sure everyone's anchored in that. Um, and the second one is uh, to, to check, check your assumptions. You know, I mean, especially if it's not something just for yourself. Um, people use things in all sorts of different ways. I mean, even there's a proper way to use a, a knife like in the kitchen. But it's amazing how many different ways people, that's just a simple tool we've had for thousands of years and people still kind of chop things in different ways. So, uh, you know, with an even more complex tool, people are going to use that in different ways. Um, and just make sure that you're, you're not making assumptions about how somebody's going to use it because they could use it in a better way, which is great, but they could also, you know, miss something that you thought was quite obvious. And it could be a bad experience for them. Um, so those are the two. I, I don't know. I'm sure I could come up with a third. I mean, uh, with any project, if, if it's a team project, it's like know and trust your team. Like a lot of the instincts that people have when creating something are really good. So if you know you, you want to work with the people uh, whose instincts you can trust, and even if you don't know them while well, like creating an environment on your team where um, people feel like they can contribute where a bad idea is something, um, valuable, especially in the beginning. Um, so you're not really throwing anything out. Um, so I guess the third one isn't really about tools, but I, every project that I've enjoyed working on has been a team project. So I'll throw that in there because I think working with other people is important to get, uh, you know, a better outcome in the end. I, I even, if I sometimes work with people where we get into wild fights, it's there's <laughs> no question that uh, the outcomes are better. Yeah. And speaking of something where you and I both have quite a bit of experience, but definitely from different spheres, conferences, conference design. Mm. If there's one part of business design or like business experience design, that's a classic cross-industry thing, it's conferences. Tell me about your conference experiences and, and philosophies. Oh, this could be a whole podcast. In See, it could, it could. It's, <laughs> I like to like tease things. And then the listeners are just like on the edge of their seat, like, oh my God, she's going to talk about conference design. And then yeah. after three minutes or so, then we wind it down. They're like, give us more, give us more. And they never get more. <laughs> 
Yes, get ready, everyone. I feel badly, but uh, yes, go, go. Uh, so, well, my conference experience started in 2009. I became involved with the SIGGRAPH um, Computer Animation and Interactivity Conference. Um, and I am going to chair the immersive part of that conference next year in 2021. So nice. I'm very excited. It's my first chair uh, nice. position, but I've been volunteering with SIGGRAPH for over a decade. And it's a huge conference. We have um, between like 15 and 22,000 attendees every year in the North American conference. And there's also uh, a SIGGRAPH Asia counterpart that happens in December. Uh, SIGGRAPH North America happens in the summer. And it's, uh, it's a really neat conference. I, I've been to several others, but what, what keeps me coming back to SIGGRAPH is that it really is a community conference and it, it, it's very focused in this like core mission of computer graphics, interactivity, um, production, and, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a convergence of art and technology, but that's such a, it's a specific topic that has so many broad applications and it just keeps growing and growing the more uh, digital uh, our lives become. So it's cool to be part of that conference and build some build a framework where uh, there there can be kind of a stable and expected experience where there's the prestige of the papers that are published from this conference where there's the wow factor of the live part of the show. We do real-time live um, and we have a computer animation festival and an experience hall where people get to try the latest in robotics and technology, AR, VR, um, but then really make it specific too. So if you're coming, the first time I came, I was a, a, a student researcher doing biomedical visualization. And I was the only person in my entire school doing that. And my school was 22,000 students. So I felt pretty lonely at school uh, in this job that I had. But uh, at SIGGRAPH, you know, there was a few people in the medical industry who needed people with my skills, who had my skills. And I got to come and there was a room of maybe like 12 of us. And we were talking really specifically about the challenges of having to be accurate with how we were visualizing the human body, um, but also make it like simple and beautiful enough that it could be educational, that it could form research. But, um, you know, there's no light, like our insides, it's, there's no light in there. It's dark. So, uh, it's funny, like being like, this is a live body, but there's no lights. And so we would have discussions about what it meant to light inside the human, you know, living body at the time. And these, it's like fascinating to me. Um, but that, that story is just to say, I think, uh, a well-designed conference is really, um, purposeful and intentional with its theme, but then does grant the participants, the attendees, a chance to break out and really like find their tribe within that group. And that's, that's what I get out of it. And that's what I'm trying to, as now a producer of this conference, that's what I want to bring to others who are, you know, coming for the first time or those who are like me who are coming after decades of participation. Let's, let's imagine for a moment that you get to take over the entire conference. You are the God Empress and yes. you get to change one thing. No holds barred, but, but one thing. Could be a small thing, could be a big thing, but you have like one shot. Is it, what would you change? What would be the thing that you would bring to this conference, which has been good enough that you've been going there for 10 years? What's your, mm -hmm. your secret desire? 
I was thinking this is like a small thing and I don't, you know, I don't know if it would be, it's a very specific for a very specific group, but when I was a student volunteer, we always got access to the digital library so we could read the papers and everything published after. Mm-hmm. And the the non-student volunteers, so those who are on the subcommittees and those who are chairing, it's all volunteer position. But we don't get access to the digital library as part of this, uh, as part of the volunteer work. And since we're working at the show the entire time, we really don't get to go to that many talks or um, see everything, a lot of it's kind of catching up on it after the fact. So I really like, I, 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 I was in events industry before I started any sort of career. And I think it's really important to take care of the people who are producing uh, the show and like, and, and all the way down to like the smallest contribution. So I, I was thinking about ways to show appreciation for those who are making the conference what it is. And I was like, we should, you know, when I do this, I'm going to make sure that my volunteers get access to the digital library because, you know, being informed and like questioning and learning about the, the latest research and computer uh, and interactivity is like really what they're there to do. But then we don't serve them as well as I think we could be. So I think there's probably more I'd like to change, but I'll answer it that way today because I was thinking about that while brushing my teeth this morning. I like that. Not the fact that you brush your teeth, which I, of course, <laughs> I, I, uh, I'm glad that happens, but on a more like meta level. But when it comes to, to that as a change, I like it because one, I also agree, you should look after your volunteers and people who contribute as much as you can. And number two, because it's such a beautiful example of something where you don't want to spend more money, you don't want to spend more energy or time, you just want to flip a switch that will make a huge difference in somebody's experience. And it's not going to cost money. It's not going to cost time. It's not going to cost resources. It should hardly even cost buy-in from somebody. It's just a matter of having the right person approve the idea at the right time. And then, boom, life is better. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I think that sort of design is much more interesting than, oh, but everybody should get their own leopard pelt. Or <laughs> we, should, we should all have better screens or high fives for everyone. High fives for everyone is, is free, but hard to do logistically. Uh, but, yes, but well, is, and especially in our current times where we can't even look oh, yes. out. Oh, yes. Now it's really <laughs> tricky. Really and, challenging. And I guess this is one of the things that fascinates me about design work in general, but especially in, in kind of the event space, is there's so much you can do that's not about bigger, faster, stronger, more, longer, but is about different. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such an overlooked part of whether it's conference design or, or whether it's just event design in general, either offline or online, that the stuff we can do if somebody just provides the idea compared to the stuff that costs actual time and money and resources to do. So thank you for that. No, it's absolutely. And I, I just want to add to that and say, because you, you get me thinking, it's, I think one of the challenges and in, in that we think, you know, bigger, more, better uh, is it, it becomes almost a habit, like different is, is unfamiliar and strange. So it's, it's hard to break out of the more, more, more. And I know, um, you know, especially in, in American culture, um, I don't know how much it is. Is it in the same in Denmark? Is it, uh, is there an emphasis on that as well? It's, it's different, I'd say, but it's still, I think one way of putting it is that once you can measure something, 
frames per second, megapixels, uh, amount of bread that people get, structural integrity of a bridge, then it's very easy to try to do something that improves that number. Mm. Because if somebody comes and says, oh, here's this bridge, how do we make it better? Most of the engineers are going to go, let's improve its structural integrity, or let's make it from cheaper materials or lighter materials or wind resistance or all sorts of things that they already have measurements for where you can take it from 70 to 75 or from 216 to 314 if you do your job well enough. Where it's really tricky if you come and say, how about we put flowers on it? It's like, okay, but but it doesn't have any flowers now. No, that's why it's going to make a big difference. But what, what does it measure? Where do we get it? Is it going to improve its scale factor? No, it's just going to get flowers. And then mm-hmm. this creating new disciplines or new new things to look at. I think that a lot of people are afraid of that because how do you benchmark it? How do you know if it's successful or not? How do you, until of course somebody's done that and then you just copy that. So next time the same engineers build the bridge, it'll be like, oh, improve the flower factor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a really good analogy to structure it too. And it's, uh, I think that's, that's kind of the challenge I'm coming into in my, in my current job at work now is, is breaking out of just measuring you know there's there's a lot of improvement that we need to make we've only the magic leap headset has only been out on the market since late 2018 it's the first headset we've released and a lot of it is not necessarily doubling down on those initial benchmarks but trying to identify you know what we missed uh how people are wanted to use this and can't today so it's it's yeah i i think that applies to uh, to all areas, um, work, conference design, it's, it's very, uh, it's, it's challenging, but it's really rewarding to break out of that, uh, that habit. And, and I guess to, to riff on that for a little bit longer is that when you're doing a hardware product of any kind, let's say when you ship one of these lovely headsets, there's some stuff on the side of the package. There's some specs, some like it has this and it has this and it has this and this, but one thing is whether it has high numbers or low numbers or good ratings or bad ratings. Another is which things are even counted. And for mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot of especially creative innovation-based work, it's finding, it's putting the weight on things that aren't counted yet. And it doesn't really matter whether it's new ways of recruiting or whether it's bridge building or whether it's, it's creating these magnificent magic leap headsets. It's as long as you are only measuring what you're measuring, then you're only going to be playing within the field you already have, mm-hmm. which of course is nice and good and can be wonderful, but also sometimes you need to get out of the field. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, especially to stay competitive or attract new talent or welcome diverse thinking or reach even a more diverse market or audience or move somebody with you know, move different people from your story. If you're, you know, in the arts, if you're creating film or uh, plays, theater, you, if you're just measuring, you know, from your, from your, how you're currently doing things, if you're not thinking about how to reach others, you can't, it limits growth. And that's, um, I think, I think it's often we lose sight of that because we're trying to do things so quickly. we lose a lot. We can lose the intention of uh, why we're doing those things. 
from there, from losing the intention, from going too quickly, let's talk about frustration for a moment. Yeah. And when do you just want to throw the towel at the wall? When do you want to hit somebody? When, when is it dark and annoying and rageful? Hmm. Work life. Well, I mean, I think this is a, I think this is, you're hitting on a personal, a personal turmoil of mine because I'm a person who's, uh, you know, I'm very orderly and procedural. That's kind of the engineering side of me, but there's a balance to that because if you get too burdened with process, you can't, uh, you know, it stifles creativity. And on the, uh, the reverse of that, if you're just pursuing, you know, boundless creativity, you don't necessarily have enough order and structure to do something with like, I, at least I don't, I think there are people who do, and I, I love watching them work, but, uh, you know, if I don't sit down and get kind of organized on, uh, that creative pursuit, I, I can't really finish the project. Um, or ship it or, you know, share it or whatever that might be. Um, so I think it really depends. It's just like, uh, it depends on kind of the environment I'm in, what part is, is pulled out more. Um, and I feel like lately I've been really burdened more with process. Um, and then that's interesting now with everything that's happened with COVID because there's all this uncertainty in the world and that's playing in just the, the, you know, the most simple part of my life with family, with friends, um, to, you know, work, uh, with SIGGRAPH, you know, it's, that's supposed to be in July this year and we're still really navigating what we're going to do with the conference. So there's all this process that's happening anyway, cause we're trying to keep the machine running, but there's so much uncertainty. Um, and I think normally I'm a very certain person. And so that has been I think it's been frustrating, but it's been, I don't, dare I say, rewarding because it's not a challenge I find. I, I'm, a, I'm not naturally uncertain. So the world has put this limitation, not only on me, but on everybody else. And we're having to navigate that together. And I think it's been very good for growth, but I, I certainly won't downplay that it's been frustrating and challenging. Makes sense. Taking from that, that these are times of learning and of growth and of change, even if it's rough and tough, and that one of my favorite things on this podcast is to have people like do three things on this or tell me three things on this. Give me the three collected tips, the collected wisdom of Callie Holder. Three tips, no pressure. I, um, what to do what? What sort of wisdom? Let's keep it at uh, in, in a businessy context. So not pet stray dogs when you see them. <laughs> okay. I was like, well, I don't know. Okay. Don't snort too much cocaine unless Brushes you're bored. Wear sunscreen. Like, is this like a Vonnegut graduation speech? What are we doing? Um, I mean, we, could, we could do that. But no, let's, let's try to <laughs> keep it in the, the business, business experience design space. Sure. Um, I mean, it's. I'm trying to think of new ones that are different from the tools. Cause I already mentioned the team and everything I know. I know. It's comes down to team um, for me. Thinking about this. I guess 
You know, one of the things that I've learned from being a manager and it's outside of even the literature, but just bringing, when you're building a team, really looking at what isn't there and hiring for that. Um, you know, I, I had some freedom with the actual skills that I was hiring for. I could, you know, tweak those a little bit, but I was given from my company, like, Hey, you need to hire people to do this job to, to support and provide technical, uh, you know, guidance for developers. But it really, to me, a lot of what I was focused on, on hiring was getting people who could more or less do those skills, but then understanding them as people and making sure I had people who really didn't all think the same way. And the, the thing I loved the most about being a manager was being the person who kind of got to not only just bring those people together, but give them the space to value each other's ideas and contributions. And whenever a new person, we always like get really tight as a group. So it's interesting whenever a new person's hired in, there's this moment of like, oh, what's this person doing? Like we already, you know, we have our, our vibe. We're already working in this way. What's this person's value? And just kind of nudging aside some space in the team so that this person feels welcome, this person can contribute. And I always hire people whose ideas are different from what we're thinking about today. Uh, that when, you know, those ideas, the person has the confidence or is just willing to finally speak up and present those once they're onboarded that that's welcome. And we, and we really talk about that. So uh, the first one I'd say is, um, you know, hire for, for what's not there. Uh, and make I sure like that. I like that. Very useful. Very, very much uh, deployable by Monday for those who find it a good tip. Yeah. Um, one down. Very nice. That's one down. Uh, I guess the second one is to stay relevant. Um, and I, I'm, I'm making that short so it can like stay with you, but it's, um, it's really easy to, um, to get comfortable or, uh, you know, kind of go with the routine with what you, this is for you, like personally in the job. Um, and it's not just like change cause you need to learn something new, but it's always to just to, to give yourself an, enough space, some percentage of your time in your job that you are taking the time to, to, you know, read a research paper, to understand, uh, to go talk to a customer, not just like read a medium article about it, but actually say, okay, this is a person that we'd like to work with. Let me go talk to that person or let me call up that like acquaintance of an acquaintance and see if they have 30 minutes to talk about this thing. Um, it's hard because again, I think we get really, <laughs> you were joking that I'm going to have these like hundred hour weeks and it's like, yes, I'm going to have no time to do this stuff, but it's, we, you're never going to have enough time to do anything. So being really intentional and smart about how you're using that time. So you don't, you don't spend wasted hours on something that is either not meaningful to you or not meaningful to your customer. Um, that's when it really starts to feel frustrating. So taking time to be relevant, to learn, to challenge yourself, to do the thing that's like maybe scary or doesn't seem like the most purposeful thing, the most meaningful thing in the moment, that has been always really rewarding for me and created a lot of value um, 
than if I was just kind of being complacent or not following my instinct on what I thought I needed to learn or what was compelling to me uh, within the context of my job. That's a good tip. And then I guess some of it's also because when, when you're doing these things, there isn't necessarily an immediate payoff. But it might mm-hmm. come a few weeks later or a few months later, or even a few years later. And if you keep doing it, just like brushing your teeth, which I'm glad to hear you still do, <laughs> then you're going to see the results of that over time, even if you don't see it on a day-to-day basis, because you just keep on rolling snowballs. And at some point, you have an ongoing avalanche. Yeah, and it's, it can be hard to pinpoint, where did this start? Or why, how did mm-hmm. I end up here? Uh, so just like that perspective, I think is has helped ground me, um, especially as I've been a lot in industries that aren't fully formed yet. Uh, there isn't necessarily a market eager to, to use what, what I'm creating at work, but fundamentally that's part of the fun design challenge is, is seeing, seeing a need, uh, when people aren't just expressively telling you, Hey, go make me like to your bridge analogy. Oh, it needs to be cheaper materials. It's like, well, maybe actually it needs to be a zip line. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> whatever it is. Exactly. Um, I'm not proposing that's how we, you know, uh, forge canals, uh, instead, but you know, it's, it's, it's really like being okay with thinking outside the box and actually creating something, um, outside the box so that it challenges us and it pushes us forward. Two out of three. Doing Two out of so three. <laughs> um, I mean, I think this is one that I use even outside of work, but I, I, I think it's really important to lead with character and not compromise on, you know, the values and your integrity. Um, And it's, I've worked, I've been thankful enough to work with people and work in companies that align with my values. Um, But even, I don't know, it kind of manifests itself in small ways sometimes. It'll be like, well, we just need to do this because somebody told us. And uh, it almost feels sometimes like dishonest to me because we don't have enough information to write that report yet or something. And I'm like, well, I don't want to make it up. So I'd like, I'd rather miss the deadline and get the information, you know, give myself three days to actually get the right information before presenting that to senior leadership, then meet the deadline. But we kind of put, piece the numbers together and we don't really know the picture. And that, that comes more from just me and what I, what I value as a person and my character more so than uh, trying to like, you know, cover my butt if, if they come back and ask to fact check, you know, what we're talking about. Um, and I think that is, that has probably gotten me out of some hot water, uh, just by I being steadfast in that way. And, um, you know, not making things comp. I'm very honest with my team. If I know information that's happening, that's going to affect them, you know, I'll be like, Hey, this is what I know. How are you guys feeling about that? Uh, and it's really helped because we've had, we've especially, you know, being a startup company, uh, building this new technology and then navigating now um, a time of economic downturn. They've, uh, you know, they've been very loyal. They've been very dedicated. My team has. Um, 
and they, they, you know, when change happened, they, they met it, um, with real grace and, um, were very fluid uh, adapting to everything. Whereas teams whose managers are a little more cagey with information or, you know, maybe tried to cover things up so that they didn't have to have the difficult conversation. This has been a lot more difficult because there isn't that trust, um, within the group. So I think, uh, being true to your character is probably the last tip I would give. Uh, and it's important to not only do that at home, but in the workplace too. See, you managed excellently. Three <laughs> tips, collective wisdom. There was no, there could have been a little bit of Vonnegut at the end, but I think we managed. <laughs> yeah, it always wear sunscreen, especially in South Florida. <laughs> I think that's a good tip in general, actually. Unless it's <laughs> Corona where you're not going outside. But yeah. speaking of South Florida and the end of all things, we are... <laughs> Thank you for that. We are almost at the end. And that means that there's a little bit of housekeeping. And then there's the, the rough moment that I have in every episode. But first, the housekeeping. And that is, where can people find you online should they look for you? Do you have a blog? Or are you on LinkedIn? Or Yeah, so I'm, um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm uh, Callie Holterman. I'm the only person on the internet with my name, which is a blessing and a curse. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Holdermania. Holdermania. I like that. <laughs> okay. So Twitter, LinkedIn, and South Florida, if you want to go crocodile wrestle. Yes. Or at least look at them. At least look at them. And speaking of at least looking, now we come to the moment of, I'm not going to call it truth, but the moment of terror. Because I always, at, at the end of every podcast, I let the guests take over for a short while. If there's a question or a Ooh. statement or a rant or something you want to say to me or to the world, or maybe to yourself with an audience, the podcast is yours. Oh, like I get to interview you? Well, or you get to say, class, you should have asked me about this, or you could, you can do exactly what you want. It's your time. Hmm. Okay. Um, well, I guess, you know, I, we didn't talk about, so I met you through the College of Extraordinary Experiences, and I, I found, I found out about the college through the No Proscenium Slack channel. Um, and I just, I, I was sitting on the same couch I'm sitting on now talking to you. And I was just like, so compelled, like, I have to go do this thing. And your website is compelling, but it wasn't, you know, I, I didn't know everything I was getting into. Um, and there was just kind of this like gut, like instinct, this pull, like I need to go, I need to do this. Um, and it was very funny cause I had just, um, I think I found it like two weeks after I had gotten married and I was like, I'm going to, and the college, uh, uh, was kicking off maybe a month after that it was very, very quick in this time when I probably like, didn't need to go by myself to Europe. But I, I just, I love that that happened. And I, I took a lot away from it and I'm still processing it in a lot of ways because it really was a, it was like a truly community focused event and it was very focused on ideas and conversation. And I, I think one of the things I've done from that more is just tried to go more with 
this is, this is what my gut is telling me. This is what I want. I'll like, I'll logic myself into any or out of any decision or into any decision. And so I think just, it's been, uh, it's been nice to reconnect with that other approach to thinking. And, uh, so I, I guess I just wanted to say thank you for that. But did you, how do you approach decisions when you're, when you're, you're, a, you're very like, you know, thoughtful person, uh, you have a lot of rationale, but like, what's your balance, I guess? Do you mostly think about things kind of with your head? Do you go with your gut? How do you, how do you guide yourself? It's a good question. And then first of all, thanks for the, thanks for the words on behalf of the college. And to answer the question, I, I'm really good at coming up with good reasons for doing things, which means that I trust my gut a lot because I can always come up with reasons afterwards. Mm. And, and part of that I think is uh, a background in philosophy, not a heavy one, but at least an interest in a little bit of university studies. So I, I find myself reasonably good at looking at things from different angles. And that means that I'm, I'm often more interested in that we go somewhere than where we're going. In my previous company, when we were discussing what projects to do, I used to say, just pick one. Whatever we do, it's going to be awesome. And that's, of course, uh, arrogant uh, and crazy, but also it was a little bit true. And I think for me that there's uh, my old partner in crime, Anas, says that I have very strong professional intuition, which is a fancy way of saying uh, making fast decisions that make sense or at least that you can make sense of afterwards. So I think the, the answer to that has to be fast, gut-based decisions that I then have a rationale for. And sometimes the, the decision-making is faster than the rationalizing, but it catches up afterwards. <laughs> so yeah, I'm pretty good at being consistent. Yes, and I'm pretty good at being consistent. And maybe that's just talking myself into what I've done. There's this lovely human bias about if I decided to do it, then it must be the right thing. Uh, on the other hand, maybe it's just because I'm, I'm, I'm pretty trained in being true to myself and therefore I can make decisions fast and then figure out why I did it later, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it, it, it does. So I'm glad I asked you because I did not know the answer to that. And uh, it's insightful. I'm not sure I knew the answer to that, but at least now I know. <laughs> that's why that's why it's important to ask questions because it's just there's always kind of this assumption otherwise that we all you ask questions a lot more as a kid and as an adult you're like I should probably know this so I won't speak up and it just it's such a it's such a sad quality to lose as people age so I think I mean so it's a good day so if I ask more questions than I give answers. That's like, I always love the days like that where I'm just asking, asking. And, uh, so, so that's how you're going to learn anything. Yeah. Well, and it's also a lot of times people go, oh, I'm so glad you asked afterwards. Like someone will say, like, I didn't know what that meant either. I thought it, I thought it was something completely different. So it's, uh, yeah, asking questions is, is, is so great. We're going to end on that note, and that means to all our listeners out there, remember to ask questions and uh, thank people for asking questions of you. You've been listening to the Business of Extraordinary Experiences. You've heard 
both the answers and the questions of Callie Holderman and me, your host, Klaus Thank you for listening.